From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. When people are released from the ICE detention center in Metro Denver, many have nowhere to go. Hi, this is Sarah with Casa de Paz. I just missed a call maybe from someone in intake. In 2012, Sarah Jackson started picking people up at the facility and offering them a hot meal and a warm bed. A new film recounts the story of Casa de Paz. You open up the door to your home, you welcome them in, you tell them, congratulations, I'm so glad you're free. But then at the same breath, you realize that he's not with his family. Then how officers of color are trying to change police culture from within and fighting Colorado's wildfires during an especially difficult year. I have a hard time thinking that most of this will ever go back to the way it was. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. When immigrants are released from the ICE detention facility in Aurora, Colorado, it can be dark outside and disorienting. So the thing is, a lot of these people that are released, they don't really know much even about Denver. Yeah. So when they're released, they're released into this industrial world, um, really with no idea of where to go. How are you guys doing? Hablo espanol. See? Soy Troy de Casa de Paz. Está buscando Casa de Paz? Casa de Paz is a gathering place in Aurora. Volunteers meet people when they're released from the detention center and take them to what's affectionately known as the Casa. There they get hot meals and guidance from volunteers. The place was the brainchild of Sarah Jackson, who started Casa de Paz in a small apartment back in 2012. Joining us is Jackson and Oliver Fone, who came to the U.S. as a refugee from West Cameroon. And Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Oliver, welcome. Thanks for having me. Casa de Paz uh, is the subject of a new documentary called Welcome Strangers. It won the Women in Film Award at the Telluride Mountain Film Festival, among others. And Sarah, the film opens with a pickup at the ICE detention facility in Aurora. We just heard one of your volunteers introducing themselves to some of the folks who've just been released. Here you are just before that talking with a worker inside the facility about the pickup. Hi, this is Sarah with Casa de Paz. Could, I, th- I just missed a call maybe from someone in intake. Oh, yeah. Um, can you have your volunteers to stick around? Because we had someone to change your mind. Yes, yeah. We, uh, we're actually on our way right now, so if you just have them wait in the lobby, we'll come, come around really shortly. Okay, very good. Okay, thank you. Sure thing. Bye. Sarah, who are the people being released? Why are they at the facility? Why are they getting out? 
There are a couple of groups of folks that are held in the Immigrant Detention Center in Aurora. The first are asylum seekers who have just arrived to the United States and lawfully presented themselves at the border asking for asylum and then taken into custody of ICE and then they can be transferred from the border to a different detention center somewhere in the United States, and they may just end up here in Denver, Colorado. And then there are also folks who have lived in the United States as undocumented folks for five years, 10 years, 20 years. Maybe they came on a work visa and overstayed their visa and then were arrested by ICE. And then they could also end up in one of these immigrant detention centers. And are some of them folks who are recently in the country and may have crossed the border illegally? There are a variety of folks. Uh, A lot of the people that are in the detention centers across the United States are asylum seekers who have come legally and followed the laws and done it, you know, crossed their T's and dotted their I's and done it the legal way. And then there are folks who have crossed without authorization and are apprehended by ICE eventually. And I don't have to tell you that this is a extremely charged political issue. What about the concern in the U.S. that some of these people crossed the border, didn't come through the legal process, and that they shouldn't be in the country in the first place? I think that's a valid question. And I think wherever you fall politically, we can agree that our immigration system is broken and that there are ways that we can make this a more humane process for people fleeing violence and persecution and war and poverty. And also at the end of the day, our mission at Casa de Paz is to reunite families separated by immigrant detention one simple act of love at a time. And really, that boils down to treating other people the way you would want to be treated. And for me personally, if my family was in danger, if I was in danger, my little three-year-old niece was in danger, nothing would stop me from making sure that we were safe. So you bring these folks to Casa de Paz, which means House of Peace in Spanish. You have 12 spots for people to stay temporarily. But I understand COVID has changed how you can house guests. Explain that. Yes. Before COVID, it was a totally normal day for us to have 12 people at the casa spending the night in in close quarters, right? It's a regular home. It's not a facility. It's just a normal house. But after consulting with medical professionals, they said, that's just not smart anymore. So what we've done is we have been able to provide same day bus tickets or plane tickets for immigrants released from the detention center so that they don't need to stay in town any longer than they than they have to in or you know before they get home to their final destination with their families or their friends or their sponsors that are living across the United States and for folks who are you know maybe there's no same day flight or bus ticket for them we're developing a new program we're calling Las Casitas which means the little homes and that is an invitation for community members to open up their personal homes for one individual guest for one or two nights and to help them as they transition from detention to their final destination. And Oliver, let's bring you in here. You came to Casa de Paz as an asylum seeker from West Cameroon. You were a guest there. Now you live and work at the Casa as a volunteer along with Sarah. Oliver and I, we both live here at the Casa. We both have like real day jobs. We're 100% volunteer run. And Oliver is a former guest of the Casa. Look at this. (laughs) 
when I tell people that hey, Sarah is my sister, they look at the picture and say, hey, what? <laughs> yeah, so, so I'll just say, hey, I'll say Sarah is my angel. Oliver, you say Sarah is your angel. Tell us about your experience in West Cameroon and why you left. Um, I grew up in West Cameroon. We call ourselves um, Southern Cameroonians. Um, actually, Cameroon is a bilingual country. They speak English and French. Um, so the English speakers, we are the minority in the country. So we feel marginalized. So when we protest, um, the government, the French majority government, um, they suppress us, they, they shoot us, they kill us, and they put us in jail. So um, that's why I had to make a, a, this drastic decision to leave Cameroon for the United States. Oliver, why did you decide to stay on and live at the house as a volunteer? Um, I decided to, to stay and work, with, um, work alongside with Sarah because, like you said, it's a safe heaven. Living, um, I got released. I've never heard about um, Aurora, Colorado. Let me tell you this quick story. <laughs> I was in detention in California. They say, hey, Oliver, you're going to um, Aurora, Colorado. I was like, what is that? Because I've never heard about Colorado, not to talk about Aurora. I even called some friends. They were like, hey, Oliver, are you sure you are in America? Because they don't know about Aurora, too. Right. So just imagine um, spending months in the detention. You got released at um, 5, 6 p.m. and you don't have anywhere to go. Right. I I didn't have any cent, any coin, any money on me. I spent $7,000 to hire um, a lawyer. Um, I didn't have a phone at that time. So um, if it wasn't for Sarah and Casa de Paz, I wouldn't be able to... I wouldn't be able to connect with my friends. And then I decided that, hey, um, I'd like to be part of um, Casa de Paz. And, um, you know, Sarah or a volunteer picked you up at the detention center right after you got out? A volunteer picked me up. So, Sarah, in the documentary, you talk about how bittersweet the experience is for those who've been detained. You talk about a new resident, Javier, um, who's just come from detention. Um, and the first thing he wants to do when he gets to the casa is to call his family. When you welcome an immigrant who has just been released from detention like Javier, and you're so happy that he's finally free and he's not behind bars, and you open up the door to your home, you welcome them in, you tell them, congratulations, I'm so glad you're free. But then at the same breath, you realize that he's not with his family. Oliver, you faced separation from your family. What was the experience like? Um, I'll say it's something like my situation. Um, I wasn't separated like here in America, so I had to leave my family back in Cameroon. Because um, the government was, the government forces were um, were looking for me, not actually my family. So I had to like left them behind and um, head for the U.S. And talk about how your own experience helps you help the guests at the casa when you greet them. I believe that. Um, 
when they see me or talk to me, like I'll say, hey, um, they can relate. We relate. Like when they see me, they know that I'll tell them that I was in the detention like you. I've been there. I know what you've been through. Um, I know how you feel. So, and basically they're going to trust me and they're going to trust Casa. Sarah, do you follow folks and, and know what happens to them after they leave the Casa? A lot of the folks that stay at Casa de Paz do stay in touch with us and let us know how they're doing. And I think that's one of the most rewarding parts of meeting people through um, Casa de Paz is these lifelong friendships. And I'll get texts randomly throughout the week of someone who stayed with us three or four or five years ago saying, hey, how are you? Just wanted to show you the picture of my kid in their Halloween costume or whatever. One of the guests that stayed with us for a couple of years ago he sends me a text on the first day of every single month, and all it says is, happy new day, happy new day of the month. <laughs> and I love that because we have this opportunity to connect with a person, right? It's not an issue. It's not a policy. It's not this system. It's a person that is really affected by these policies and systems. But at the end of the day, we're looking into their eyes and we're making a connection that is oftentimes lasting for years. And Oliver, do you think you'll stay on volunteering at the CASA? You've sacrificed a lot of your life staying there and um, you know spending 24-7 helping folks. Do you think you'll keep it up? Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm not. Um, I have no intention to leave the casa because they are my family. Casa de Paz is a family to me. I don't really have. I'm coming to the United States. I I don't have like any family. So Casa de Paz, it's all the volunteers we have. I always tell Sarah we have the best volunteers in the world. So they are my family. Um, yeah. I'm not going anywhere. I'll continue to help folks and reunite them with their families. Oliver, thanks for being with us. I'm glad to be here. And Sarah, thanks. thank you. Thank you. Sarah Jackson started Casa de Paz, a home in Aurora for people released from the nearby ICE detention facility. Oliver Fone stayed with Sarah after being released from detention. He's originally from West Cameroon, and he now lives and volunteers at the Casa with Sarah, helping newly arrived guests. The two are the subject of a documentary called Welcome Strangers. The film was directed by Boulder-based Dia Soko Savage. It will stream online beginning today through October 11th. You can find out how to get tickets at casadepazcolorado.org, and we'll have a link later today in the Colorado Matters podcast at CPR.org. Welcome Strangers will also be showing at the Denver Film Festival, which begins later this month. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. For a growing number of Americans, cannabis is synonymous with edible, a word that used to refer to box brownies with that distinctive skunky aftertaste is now being elevated into a culinary art. My hope is to showcase Michelin star quality African cuisine paired with premium cannabis. On the latest episode of On Something, Denver chef Harold Sims walks us through the brave new world of eating your weed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. 
This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Law enforcement officers of color have been patrolling the police brutality protests with a foot in two camps. Many empathize with the movement and have felt racism themselves at the hands of police. But CPR's Allison Sherry reports they've chosen to change police culture from within. The officers of color I talked with all had their own experiences of police discrimination out of uniform. In El Paso County, I sat with three black officers from the sheriff's office. I asked about whether they'd ever had a bad experience with law enforcement. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you want details? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I've had, I've been stopped. Um, yeah, numerous times for uh, no reason whatsoever. Uh, here that is Cliff East Northam. Coast, uh, he is now a bureau chief at the El Paso County Sheriff's Department, and he's been in law enforcement for almost 40 years. He told the story of one harrowing time he was stopped by police because they said he fit a suspect description. I was uh, in the area that a robbery just occurred, and the suspects were black males, and uh, I just happened to be a black male. and. I was minding my own business in that area, and I was pulled over, uh, taken out of the car at gunpoint, put down on my knees, uh, searched, uh, and they asked who I was, where I was coming from, saw the gun that I was wearing, which kind of scared me because I said, I have a gun. Uh, and then I heard yelling, he's got a gun. I said, I also have a badge. And, you know, I, I had to quickly get that out because when I heard he's got a gun, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to get shot. During that entire episode, Northam's young son was in the car. He wept throughout the arrest. Chief Northam says he understands how the anger can build over time. He uses this story for racial bias trainings for other officers. I also understand that there are some people out there where that happens over and over and over and over again, and the frustration just builds and builds until, okay, this next time they jump out of the car, they start cussing, they're upset, they maybe walk a little too fast towards an officer and it becomes a use of force or, God forbid, a shooting. For this story, I talked to six Black and Latino law enforcement officers across the state over the past month about what it's like to be an officer right now and how the police brutality movement has sparked change. All of them agreed there needs to be reform. Now, Sergeant Carla Havard has been at the Denver Police Department since the 1990s. She started on patrol moved to investigations, and now has a job downtown, working in community engagement. Where you been? You been staying out of trouble? I'm trying. Way out here. Hi, how are you? On a recent day, Havard stopped at a Village Inn restaurant to meet a friend she'd had in the community for a long time, a woman she met on the job who needed help once. The woman wanted to immediately talk about the protest movement. That's my point. We've been talking about doing things That's because for 450 years. Havard takes a big-picture view of the problem. It's the basic evil that's at the, uh, at the center of it, and that's racism. And I think we haven't figured out an answer for that. And that's rooted in a lot of processes from HOA to... Havard has both experienced racism herself, banking, she's been trailed around a department store by security yeah, so, guards, and she's patrolled police brutality protests downtown, where she's been called names because she's a law enforcement officer. Law enforcement in general, historically, has not treated brown and black communities fairly. We, we know that. That's why we're willing to come to the table and have these uncomfortable, honest conversations. 
you know, we want to engage in those relationships so our officers can, A, understand that these people, and I hate that word, these people are you. Because when we take off this uniform, we're not that much different. Everyone wants to be happy, healthy, and safe. That's it. Nationally, only one in four police officers are Black or Latino, according to the Justice Department. No one is tracking that statistic statewide in Colorado. In Denver, 22% of officers are Latino and 9% are Black. Denver officer Reyes Trujillo has patrolled the city's neighborhood since the 1990s. He says he can feel tension between police and the community on the streets. As we're walking down the street, people will feel more emboldened to flip us off. Trujillo has lived through the peaks and valleys of police popularity. After 9-11, people bought him lunches and coffees, thanked him for his service. And now? They'll tell us, you know, that we're killers and have we killed any black people recently? Obviously, for somebody that's trying to do the right thing on a daily basis and keep an even mentality all of the time, yeah, it's challenging and it's hurtful, really. Officer Paul Oskell of the Lakewood Police Department has followed the protest movement closely. He says he understands racism because... You know, I've been a Hispanic male growing up in the Littleton suburbs my whole life, and so I, I get what they're, what they're saying and I've experienced things that where I can understand it. Oskell says the protests have made him re-examine some of the calls he gets for police help, especially when the caller's reasoning for finding someone suspicious is vague. Our main function is to, to enforce the law and to protect our community. But we also need to protect the person that's getting called in on. Are they doing anything wrong? Is it, is it warranting a police contact? And I know for me, that's something that I'm looking more into. El Paso County Sheriff's Deputy Edwin Wilson says some people are treating him differently on the job since George Floyd's death in Minnesota. Recently, he stopped an African-American driver for speeding on I-25. It took me by surprise and it kind of hurt for a second um, because he's, he told me, he's like, well, being a young black man in America, I was scared. Wilson, who is also black, really says he was surprised and kind of hurt to hear that. He pressed the driver on what he meant by that comment. What bad experience had this man had with police? He said his cousin was shot by a cop. And I apologized. Hey, man, I don't know that situation. I don't know the story. Regardless, apologizing, hey, I can't fix that. I can't bring your cousin back. The younger officers I spoke with say they're having conversations with white colleagues about these issues. Others, who are more experienced, are trying to use their unique perspectives and leadership positions to push for reform in their departments. Sergeant Havard says she's proud to work in Denver, where the department has instilled more implicit bias training. You can fix something from the outside or from the inside. I'm choosing to fix it from the inside. I would love more minorities to be a part of the profession. You want to fix it? Come help me fix it from within. The tension many of these officers feel, both personally and professionally, was apparent in the hours I spent with them over the last month. They're having the conversations inside and outside their departments. And all of them were clear, they're eager to see law enforcement do what's needed to gain the community's trust. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News. The Cameron Peak Fire near Red Feathers Lakes, west of Fort Collins, continues to challenge firefighters. It's been burning for nearly two months now and is about 40 percent contained. The firefighting experience has been turned upside down because of the pandemic, and it takes a personal toll on fire crews. There's a lot of times that things don't go well on fires. 
some of the hardest things that sticks with you is probably some of the uh, fatalities that we have every year. I've had a couple friends that I met through fire and we stayed friends and stayed in contact that have passed, you know, in the line of duty. You know, those are the things that, that always kind of stick with you. You just, you don't forget them. My name's Lance Elmore. I'm the deputy incident commander. It's just the oversight you know, of the entire fire. Cameron Peak Fire keeps growing in northern Larimer County. The Larimer County Sheriff's Office orders mandatory evacuations. Doctors are warning those recovering from COVID-19 to stay inside. COVID has been challenging as we work to try and put folks together. We hardly ever do any meetings um, in person. Now we're doing briefings on the radio. We're doing it through uh, Zoom. You know, obviously it's hard to not see someone I think body language is a huge part of our communication styles and understanding. The biggest thing with that is you have to really over-communicate. Talking on phones or whatever it is is probably about twice the amount of work as it is, you know, face-to-face -face where you can see body reactions and emotions. The wearing masks, staying away, not shaking hands, doing those things to me almost goes a little bit against human nature. I still have a hard time not walking up and shaking someone's hand that I meet. To me, it causes maybe a little bit of separation, you know, without that contact and without that kind of emotion and things that I think we as human beings have just grown up and used to. You know, you work with people for 14 or 21 days at a time. And I guess it's relationships that are built rather quickly and I think it's because of the situations that we get put in when you have fire going into a community and houses are burning. 54 homes and buildings have been destroyed in the Cameron Peak Fire west of Fort Collins. A team from Larimer County has searched the burn area for damage. The Larimer County Sheriff's Office says 25 homes... In the past, that incident command post would have been near to the fire with a caterer and lots of large tents for the team personnel and lots of space around large fields or you know whatever you could find where you just see hundreds and hundreds of tents for people to sleep at night that would have been what we would have had in the past but now with the technology you have to have wi-fi and internet and everything else so we don't have the large congregation of personnel like in the past i have a hard time thinking that most of this will ever go back to the way it was Lance Elmore is the Deputy Incident Commander for the Cameron Peak Fire burning west of Fort Collins. Sam Sanson produced the story through NPR's Next Gen Radio, which trains the next generation in public media. We'll share additional Next Gen stories in the days ahead on Colorado Matters. That's our show for today. Thanks to Shane Rumsey, Pedro Lombrano, and our executive producer, Carl Bielek. And thanks for listening to member-supported CPR News. We depend on you to bring you stories from all over the state, the country, and the world. You can find us on Twitter at Colorado Matters. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.